Number one, eliminate uncertainty. I believe employee uncertainty about what's going to happen is a great cause of stress for, for employees of any company, but especially for fast growing companies. Because you always have this uncertainty of, are you going to succeed? Are you going to survive? Is this company going to be around? This is Decoding Digital, and I'm your host, Daniel Sachs. Every episode, we hear from someone who is working to build something new in the digital economy. Each guest has a unique perspective to share. And together, we work to understand or decode a trend that is shaping our digital world. Today, I'll be decoding entrepreneurship with Brad Feld. Thinker, writer, activist, runner, mentor, investor. My guest for today's show is all of these things and more. Brad Feld started his first company in 1987 while he was still in school at MIT. Since then, he has gone on to found several venture capital firms and a highly respected seed accelerator called Techstars. Today, he is managing director of Foundry Group, a venture capital firm based in Boulder, Colorado, that has invested in successful companies including Fitbit, SendGrid, and in the spirit of full disclosure, our company AppDirect. Over the years, he's written more than 10 books, including the best-selling Venture Deals. Not only is Brad something of a legend in the startup world, both in Boulder and across the world, but he's also one of the most thoughtful and mindful people you'll ever meet. We're honored to have him as an investor, and I'm grateful that he's taken the time out of his schedule to be on our podcast. Hi, Brad. We're uh, thrilled to have you here on the show today. Thanks for having me. Certainly. You've clearly do- done so much over your career as an entrepreneur and investor. When did you know that this was going to be your life's work? I never really worked for anybody. Um, and so well before the word entrepreneur was used regularly, uh, I was behaving in an entrepreneurial way. I had, you know, as a teenager, I had, you know, your typical teenage jobs, you know, working maintenance at a tennis club and then working in a fast food restaurant. Uh, and I got fired from each of those jobs. I didn't like them. I was probably not a great <laughs> employee in the context of the work. Um, uh, you know, I probably did, did the work, but didn't, didn't do it with, uh, any sort of a vigor. And I, in, in high school, even I started a tutoring business, uh, for the SAT and er, early on in my, even before I was an adult, I really sort of had this sense of wanting to work for myself, wanting to not be constrained by whatever the norms were, um, and have the freedom to explore different things. Um, I did work for a software company when I was in college um, that I started uh, between high school and college, but I got paid 10 bucks an hour, but I got 5% of revenue for the products that I developed. So the concept of equity didn't really apply to that particular company. I didn't understand it at the time. Um, and it was, it was oil and gas software company. So they were very, you know, the oil and gas industry runs off royalties and royalty rates and that sort of thing. And so, you know, while I was in college, I'd literally get checks in the mail each month, you know, for $1,000 or $2,500. One month, I got a check for over $10,000, which was a remarkable amount of money. But it it was a real reinforcement of sort of my effort producing a thing, this case, a piece of software, and then having variable compensation based on, you know, the value that's created over time. And so, like, that whole philosophy got woven in pretty early. Um, I was always a computer guy and a nerd, but I was also interested in business. And today, you know, this is in the 1980s. Today, you would have, one would have said I was interested in entrepreneurship. Um, but the linkage of those two for me uh, 
started early and I was really fortunate in terms of my timing. Um, I was in college from 83 to 87. So the, uh, the Mac had come out, um, in high school, you know, I got the experience of the Apple II. So I was a kid during the first wave of the personal computer stuff, but I was becoming a young adult, uh, as entrepreneurship was starting to rise. And so from college forward, I've always had my own uh, my own business, or I've been an entrepreneur, or I've been an investor in other people's businesses. And it's just been the way that I've sort of lived my whole life from that point. And when did you become a venture capitalist? I sold my first company in 1993 to a public company. And uh, I, uh, I had a partner. Uh, we really had never thought about selling the company. So that was random. We had a business that uh, was self-funded and, and, and we made money every month and uh, the business was growing. Uh, and we got approached by a, a public company who was buying lots of companies. Um, and uh, it took us about six months to decide to sell the company. But after we sold the company, um, I took almost all the money that I made from that deal, a couple million bucks. And over a two-year period, uh, I bought a house. But then over a two-year period, I invested in about 40 companies. Uh, and this was twenty-five dollars to $50,000 angel investments, or today even called pre-seed investments. I helped start some, some of these companies. Um, and I really very, I, I knew nothing about angel investing when I made my first one. I knew nothing about investing when I made my first angel investment. Uh, and so it was a very rapid learning experience as an extremely early stage investor. My timing was quite good. It was 1994 to 96. So those seed investments were done at the beginning of the rise of the commercial internet. So, uh, from that, I ended up accidentally, uh, becoming a VC, um, you know, the, the rise of the internet bubble uh, was incredible at many levels. I was also the co-founder of a couple of companies, some that uh, succeeded in the internet bubble and some that, that looked like they were going to succeed and then crashed incredibly hard. One of my uh, biggest uh, painful failures was a company that I co-founded in 1996 uh, and had a $3 billion, uh, roughly $3 billion valuation in 2000 and was bankrupt in 2002. Um, so just the experience of those kinds of things was unbelievably formative. Um, the rise up was, uh, intense. Uh, you could, if you sneezed, you made money, uh, terrible ideas, you know, were, were funded all over the place and sort of at the peak of the internet bubble, the amount of money being funded into companies, uh, even at the early rounds, again, those $250,000 seed rounds in 1994 had all of a sudden become $20 million seed rounds. Uh, in 2000. Um, the collapse was much faster than the rise, even though the rise was over a three or four year period, the collapse was a 12 month period. And it was just a sharp downward. Every day was worse than the previous day. Um, you know, there was no saving anything. Uh, and it was just a matter of, you know, the, the cliches abounded, right? And my favorite was, my favorite one was don't catch a falling knife. Like you'd hear that 17 times a day. It's like the cliches are not helpful. Like everything's just up and it's time to like try to deal with it and and figure a way, way through it. And of course, some of the companies ended up being successful, but the, the period of time was very formative. And it then led to a period of time I refer to as, for me as the grind, which was after my world fell apart uh, as an investor in the company's you know, dynamics in 2001, um, uh, 2002 to 2007, for me, maybe 2006 was just a grind at Mobius, like dealing with Mobius, the firm scaling back. We scaled back from, I think, at the peak 70 people 
Uh, today, literally, I'm the only person that manages any of the Mobius things, and we're basically almost done, finally, with all of those funds. I think we'll shut the last fund down this year. Um, but that's, you know, that's 20 years later uh, uh, of, of managing that stuff. Um, the, uh, the experience of trying to navigate through new investments against the backdrop of a collapse, against the backdrop of entrepreneurship being way out of favor, you know, from 2003 to 2006 or seven, you know, it, it wasn't really, you know, Web 2.0 started to emerge in 2004, 2005. So there was a little bit of energy starting again, but it was very, very uh, diminutive. And then interestingly, as things started to scale back uh, up uh, on the entrepreneurial side, we ran right into the teeth of the global financial crisis. And 2008 to 2010, uh, was a you know was a pretty challenging time overall. We raised our first Foundry Group fund in 2007, uh, which was not a particularly easy time to raise a, a fund, especially a new fund, especially against the backdrop of all the history of venture. It was still very out of favor in 2007. And so, if you then take that and and traject forward 13 years, um, you know it's been cr pretty amazing what has happened around entrepreneurship globally the democratization of innovation, the democratization of entrepreneurship, the notion that you can create startup communities and entrepreneurial companies all over the world, um, the explosion of, in a positive way, of venture as an asset class, and not just the, the you know, huge amounts of late-stage money trying to move from public markets down into private markets, but just sort of the whole spectrum uh, of investing activity in new innovative companies and the shift, which was, you know, in hindsight, a pretty logical shift from classical industrial society um, to much more of uh, information-based tech society, things that have been, and business, things that have been predicted for a very long time, but also the shift from a hierarchical model, sort of top-down control, innovation being dictated, companies like having research labs and, and you know, big companies like GE and AT&T of of your being the source of innovation in the 70s and the 80s um, to really user-driven uh, innovation, the, the rise of open source, the notion of new companies and entrepreneurs with literally a laptop and an idea being able to create enormous uh, companies that have incredible structural shifts in our society. Positive, but also the negative side of that and how you know that's created incredible inequity uh, 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 in, our, in the US, but also in the world. Um, created, you know, I think there's lots of tech optimists, and I probably put myself in the category of tech optimist. Um, but also, when you take a, a careful look at what tech has enabled and entrepreneurship and innovation has enabled, um, there's plenty of things that it's enabled that are not uh, necessarily positive factors. Um, and I think that's part of the cycle of human being, existence, society, all the artificial structures that we create to try to manage all this stuff. And so when I reflect on it, um, like if, if you said, hey, Brad, would you have chosen to do something different with your life? The answer is no, this has been incredible. Um, you know, great moments of joy, great moments of pain, uh, but an enormous amount of learning and a continual evolution in unpredictable ways in a very, very, very complex system that you know is has many overleaving parts where it's impossible to predict what's going to happen in the future, and instead you just have to experience what's going on rather than try to control it. Brad's concept of network versus hierarchical leadership 
I think it's something that was so fascinating in really looking at how in the traditional world, leadership and management was very top down, whereas in the you know current entrepreneurial environment and digital environment, things are much more network oriented or bottoms up. And the networks that Brad's created through uh, you know investments uh, in angel companies and innovation really showcases that that model. And what we see when we're helping enterprises digitally transform is this concept that Brad touched on on empathy, recognizing that big hierarchical companies can learn to create innovation from the ground up. And likewise, I believe that entrepreneurial companies or in the cloud digital companies can also learn on how to create structure and operational rigor through those hierarchical companies. So a lot of it is how you can get the balance right between models versus pick one or the other. And speaking of what's going on today, how do you contrast the current market environment to what happened in you know, 99 or 2008? Well, they're all different. Um, 2008 was very different than 99 for me in, in 99. And, and I would really say 2000 because that's when things fell apart. Um, and for most people, by the way, they didn't deal with reality till 2002. Um, so, you know, kind of 2000 was the peak. Things started to decline. 2001 was a sharp downward, and 2002 was the the reconciliation, uh, sort of dealing with okay, this is where we are. Um, 2008 to 2010, for for and 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 as an you know investor in tech in, in internet, living in in Boulder, uh, where we were down the road from Denver, which was you know enormously impacted by the telecom bust, which was a parallel bust bubble that busted along with the internet bubble. Um, you know, it was, that was an experience of one type, the financial crisis. I almost didn't notice the financial crisis. Like I was very aware of it at the macro level. Um, but in terms of entrepreneurship, I mean, we, we were making steady investments in companies. Uh, we were cautious about, uh, realities, companies that were, you know, well-established companies in 2007, you know, we're, we're careful about expanding and really paying attention to whether they're going to lose a lot of customers and what all those dynamics look like. Uh, but new companies just kept getting started and the growth was steady. And many of these companies were not really impacted by the structural craziness that started playing out uh, in that time period. And by 2010, um, I would say that most people were understanding around the world that entrepreneurship and innovation was the economic way out of the financial crisis, that there wasn't going to be a snapback effect uh, to traditional businesses. And what, what you saw you know, over the last decade is an enormous amount of market disruption uh, from new entrants and from new companies, not just in technology, but across all sectors of our society, all, all aspects of, uh, of business, commerce, production, et cetera. And so that, that was a very different kind of thing for you know, the world of entrepreneurship. Um, today's moment, it's impossible to predict where this ends. I mean, we're, we're living in, for me, in, you know, July 8th of uh, 2020. Uh, this, is, this is the most uh, complex, I'm going to use that word again, complex moment uh, of the intersection of various forces that I've ever experienced in my lifetime. Uh, and I think most people alive uh, would, I won't assert that most people alive will, I think people can decide for themselves. But for me, uh, th this is this is one of those experiences. I mean, we're dealing with multiple crises that are all individually, they're all extremely complex systems that are overlapped and intermingled. We have a health care, a health crisis, which is the disease itself. 
Um, and we have an enormous amount of obfuscation and misunderstanding around the disease. You know, the United States opened back up um, in a very chaotic way. Uh, some states are completely open, some are not. There's a lot of oppositional behavior, so a lot of people aren't doing basic things that are well understood at this moment in time to prevent the spread of the disease, like wearing masks, which, by the way, doesn't protect uh, you from other people, it protects other people from you. And so just like basic stuff that would be so easy to explain and articulate, we're just, we're just blowing. Um, and yet everybody says, well, but the death rate's way down. You know, it's not, it's not nearly as deadly this time. Yeah, lots more cases, but not as deadly. And that's just a complete lack of understanding of what's going on because the death rate and the death curve lacks the infection curve by three to four weeks. We already learned this. Like we, we learned this the last time, like four months ago, three months ago, we learned this. And yet, you know, there's all kinds of theories about, well, it's mutated and, and we understand this better and we understand that better. Maybe. So that healthcare crisis generated an economic crisis, right? Our broad economy was very strong in February, January, February. Clearly the market, whatever that means, whatever index you use, uh, is completely disconnected from the underlying economic reality uh, of how we're doing. So how is that going to play out? I don't know. Um, do I really care? I can't influence it, so I can just sort of deal with it. Um, but there's a lower level economic crisis that's much more interesting, which is the you know massive unemployment that we have, um, the structural inequity uh, of many types of businesses, people who literally have businesses that are shut down or going out of business, and all of that's in front of us. We haven't dealt with that really yet, and we're going to see the effect of that over the next couple of quarters. And again, we don't. it's a complex system. We don't know what's going to happen. This is generating a mental health crisis. As human beings, we did not plan to stay in our houses 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so... There's all kinds of effects around this, notwithstanding the fact that there's incredible pressure on people, you know, make their next uh, paycheck. What am I going to do with my kids? Uh, you know, my, uh, the, my spouse is, I uh, have domestic violence in my house, and now I don't have any uh, way to get any help. Um, I'm afraid of the disease for various reasons. A friend of mine or a family member just died. Like all kinds of stuff that's extra weight on all of the other pieces. And of course, in the U.S., you know, we we have had as well a racial uh, racial inequity crisis or racial equity crisis. I think I like both labels. I think they're interesting because they stimulate different thoughts. And interestingly, these four crises are not new. Like the racial equity crisis has been going on for 450 years in our country. Um, mental health crisis, ongoing phenomena that we've been dealing with for many many years in our country, and finally acknowledging and starting to make some progress against. Economic crisis, we have lots of cycles. We just talked about, you know, two other ones in, in uh, the internet bubble and the financial crisis. And health crises and pandemics are, you know, continue not at this scale. But I'm, I'm a child of the, the HIV and AIDS crisis. I was in college during uh, the emergence of HIV, and that was terrifying. I mean, I remember it as a, as a young person in my 20s, and just the uncertainty, the stigma, uh, the discrimination, um, the complete lack of understanding from the healthcare system of what to do because it was new. Nobody knew what to do. It took a long time to figure out anything. So if you then, when you ask the question, how does this compare? Those other crises were very economic, right? The internet bubble was very, very isolated around uh, the collapse of the, the internet stocks and the internet sector and innovation around the internet and companies putting E in front of, little E in front of whatever they did Isolated. The financial crisis was a fundamental shift 
from hierarchical business to network-driven business, in my mind. And it was a collapse of some of the existing uh, financial structures that was triggered by uh, excessive speculatory activity at both a business level and a personal level, right? A mortgage and mortgage crisis and that sort of thing. Interestingly, which many of those are sort of emerged back, right? As, as opportunities to make money. And so you have s sectors of our current or prior to COVID, our current economy, um, you know, that if you look at it and you squint, you say, yeah, that doesn't look so like it's going to end well. Um, that are reflective, but it's just like a tiny part of what's going on in the midst of this COVID crisis. And what's the role of technology today in both essentially supporting digital business, but also uh, risks associated with uh, technology in terms of uh, mass media and, uh, and really the impact on mental health? Yeah, I, um, I have a lived experience with this because I struggle with anxiety and depression. And um, I have had to deal with uh, my own experience with, uh, in some cases, some technologies that I've helped <laughs> invest in uh, and advance and, and companies that I've supported uh, and used and figure out how to have them relate to my life. Um, I think that in, if asked the question in 2000 and somewhere between 2007 and 2010, um, I would have said that um, all of these technologies will be a force for good um, because they will democratize our society globally. They will lower barriers uh, to everything. They will increase uh, communication flow. They will shift us. I've been using this phrase hierarchical to network. They will shift us from a top-down hierarchical society uh, to a bottoms-up network society. And, and I think of my whole world as a bottoms-up network emergent you know, kind of world. I would have said something like that in 2010. Um, uh, I think today, um, many of the technologies have actually been a real force for harm in our world at many levels. Um, and I think some of that is a function of uh, the companies and not the businesses or the products, but the leadership uh, and the position and perspective that the leadership has taken relative to what their responsibilities are as owners of companies, right? As owners of companies, you know, there's a very, you know, the sort of classical view, you know, uh, my goal is to generate value for the shareholders, right? I need to generate more economic wealth. Um, and that's fine. No argument with that as a goal. That doesn't have to be the only goal. And uh, I think that we have found ourselves for some reason, uh, in tech, in a place of, uh, I'm not going to get the words right, so I, maybe I won't try. I'll use, I'll put the word moral in front of it. Um, we have this moral superiority. We know better than the rest of everybody else about what they need. And then on the other end of the spectrum, and I'm saying we, not to include me, but to include me, I'm part of, you know, part of the ecosystem. Um, and yet what we've done is really, in many ways, grotesque um, and doesn't cause us to take responsibility for it. And there have been plenty of people along the way that have written long things that are very articulate about this. Roger McNamee wrote a book called Zucked a few years ago. 
And, you know, I strongly encourage it. Like whether you agree with Roger or not, doesn't matter. It's very insightful in how he decodes sort of the history and the evolution of his own personal thinking around uh, how good or bad technology has been. Um, I continue to believe, uh, and I've been saying this for a long time, I think the machines have already taken over. Um, I think they took over. I think they're very patient. I think they're, the AIs are just waiting for us to enter all the information into them. And they just allow, you know, they have a much longer duty cycle than us, so they're just getting smart as things pass. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I don't think we understand how all of these things interrelate. And when you, when you line up different elements of our society, um, you know, technology against business, but also against um, sort of the non-business, non-technology, social structure, social fabric, pick any category you want. And then you put into that the legal system and how laws work. Um, and a friend of mine, Phil Weiser, has, uh, who's now Attorney General of Colorado, has said for a long time that the law does not keep up with technology. And that is so, so, so true. It just simply doesn't. Um, and so you're always trying with legal structures to catch up to a thing that's already happened rather than positively affect what's going on in the moment. Uh, you know, toss government into the mix and, you know, you, you think about just the challenges of, of the intersection between how government works, whether it's in a democracy like the U.S. or somewhere that's not a democracy against technology. And then on top of all of that, like, um, I'll, and I'll use the moment in time, I think that many people in, in office culture had, uh, you know, an amazing aha moment, which was probably mid-April. If you had said in uh, February, 95% uh, of the office workers in the world will be working from home, they, whoever you said it to would have just laughed at you. I said, what are you talking about? And by the way, somebody, people would have said, that can't happen. We don't have the technology infrastructure for that. Companies can't function that way. Everything will stop. Well, guess what? You know, it's, you know, a couple months later and, you know, whether we like it or not, we're still doing it. And for a lot of people, it works great. For some people, it's awful. And for some people, it's somewhere in between. That is a structural shift. Like it's a real, it's a complete phase shift. Like will we ever go back to the same kind of in-office culture we had in January of 2000. And I don't think we will. I don't think companies will go back to work that way. And by the way, that changes the characteristics of lots of things. We've already seen with major tech companies, just as an example, you, you know, companies that say, look, work from home if you want. We're going to be a remote first company. I, I think that was a phase Facebook used. Twitter's said we may never have a permanent office again. And in many of these companies uh, and many entrepreneur companies are saying, you know what, it, you don't have to live in the city anymore. If you want to live somewhere else, just you know, here's what you need to be able to do. You need to be able to be online. You need to be able to this. You need to be able to be that. That's that's your responsibility. And the idea of having a fully distributed remote workforce, like how, you know, WordPress does it or, or GitLab does it, is no longer an anathema. Like, it, it's not for everyone, but it's no longer a can't do it at all. And so I think we're in this moment where so many of our societal things will be like that. And it, you prompted that rant with mental health question that has an enormous impact on people's mental health, positive or negative. And I think as business leaders, understanding that for the people that work for you, paying attention to it, being nuanced about it, um, and really sort of embracing how you can have a positive impact on people's mental wellness rather than create structure 
that diminishes their mental wellness uh, in the context of whatever you end up doing is a powerful differentiator going forward that five years ago, nobody would have talked about. And what are some of the strategies that you see to do that? Uh, number one, eliminate uncertainty. Uh, I believe employee uncertainty about what's going to happen uh, is uh, the, a great cause of stress for, for employees of any company, but especially for fast-growing companies. Because you always have this uncertainty of, are you going to succeed? Are you going to survive? Is this company going to be around? Like, like any, anybody who works for an entrepreneurial company that doesn't have that somewhere in their head is, uh, has either really good compartmentalization or is in denial. Um, and especially for smaller companies, you know, AppDirect's gotten to a point where it's got, you know, real scale and, you know, the chance of it disappearing overnight is asymptotically close to zero. Um, but when you were young, like when we first met and you were, you know, whatever, 75 or 100 people, no guarantee that you had a future in front of you. You had a premise, you had a business, you had momentum, you had progress, but there's a lot of stuff that could get in your way. Um, and so eliminating uncertainty is powerful. You can't eliminate that particular uncertainties. And if you were a company and you had geared back up and you had organized around going back to work and then you got a 24-hour notice that you were back in hard lockdown uh, for six weeks and you hadn't uh, forget about physically prepared for it. Sure, you could do it, but if you hadn't emotionally prepared for that, right? If your workforce was not ready for the idea that that would be how you'd have to work again, you might be able to go fine. Everybody goes back home and they're on Zoom and you're doing whatever, but how do people feel, right? It's not just how are you doing, it's how do you feel and digging into that. And I think that's a big thing you can do for uh, for folks. It, it It's linked to reducing uncertainty because if you set the expectation of, hey, it's not that everything's back to normal. We're still in this crisis. And we're still a company trying to work cohesively and together. But we're going to have to adapt and we're going to have to be flexible. In some ways, it, it, it's the opposite of, you know, you, you say, well, you're trying, I'm trying to reduce uncertainty. Well, yeah, but if you say everything's back to normal and then you tear it all up, that's a ton of uncertainty because now you have no credibility ever again when you say it goes back to normal. Right, so just sort of work through all those pieces as a leader um, and recognize that you don't have control over the exogenous forces. And so you have to help people with it in that moment. You talked a lot about the idea and transition from a hierarchical model to a network model. And you've talked you know, a lot about transitions. Um, how do people manage their mental health in these transitions? And how do you get ahead of what could come next? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I, I key on the word manage, and, and maybe that's the thing that causes me to say I don't know. I, I believe as a human, uh, one will have continual changes of all kinds of elements of their life and their life experience uh, that will be in contrast with their underlying programming from you know, being young, like whatever our programming is. And um, in the absence of one's own, doing one's own work around that, most of us will play out our programming over and over again. So uh, uh, Jerry Colonna, who is, uh, I think, the best CEO coach in the world and one of my closest friends, has a, a phrase that they use in their methodology at their, their company, Reboot, called uh, radical self-inquiry. 
And for leaders, their, their magic formula is a combination of radical self-inquiry um, uh, and uh, you know, continuous uh, 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 learning. Uh, practical skills development is the phrase they use. So radical self-inquiry by itself is just therapy. <laughs> Practical skills development is, you know, taking online classes and being part of a peer group and learning stuff. I mean, either one by itself is fine. The magic is the connection of the two. And if you think about it from that standpoint, managing your own mental health uh, is a combination of those two. It's a continual exploration of what is your current programming, your current environment, your past programming, how those things fit together, what you want to do, what you think you want to do, how you want to do it, who you want to do it with. And, you know, there's lots of different ways to do that with a coach, with therapy, or with yourself. Um, it's lots of different tactics and techniques uh, that you can do. Um, you know, today, mindfulness and med meditation, you know, in Western U.S. is a, a popular thing. But there's endless, endless ways uh, to explore yourself and to understand who you are and where you are and where you came from, both by yourself in a facilitated way. And at the same time, the practical skills development is equally important against the backdrop of this environment. Like what are the things, especially as you get older, right? What are the things that you are doing to continue to learn, to continue to advance the way you approach things, to change your perspective on certain things so you don't get into the same patterns or stay in the same loops on and on, especially against a very confusing backdrop in the world, which by the way is not new. Our World backdrop's always been confusing. That's what we do as people, as humans. And so, you know, reinvestigating some of your base assumptions often affect very significantly your own mental health. So I'm not sure it's managing it is, is not the word I'd use so much as a, a continual exploration and a recognition that, um, you know, look, our, a big part of it is our hormones, right? Some of <laughs> we have a good day, we have a bad day. Like, you, you can have great things going on and feel like shit. You could have all kinds of shitty things going on and feel great. Um, you could be awesome at, at managing denial. You could be great at compartmentalizing. Like, all those things are just tactics in the human being of trying to deal with all the stimuli versus going the level down and saying, okay, what, what actually matters? Because at the end of this journey, I'm dead. Um, and so between now and the end of this journey, what do I actually want to have in this journey, knowing that I'm going to have lots of ups and downs and plenty of things that are hard and plenty of things that are bad. And what advice would you have to either entrepreneurs or people innovating today um, in managing the current environment? Try, and I use the word try deliberately because it's hard, try to figure out uh, how to have an existence uh, that doesn't uh, doesn't cycle or spiral out of control on, on a particular dimension. Um, and there's a bunch of different things. It depends whether you're single living alone or whether, you know, you're uh, a couple with four kids. Like you've got to, you, your environment matters a lot to the specific thing you do. Um, but trying different things, especially when things aren't working, when you find yourself, uh, in an unhappy place or in a rut or feeling exhausted um, and also go back to simple things that you used to do that worked for you. You know, take, take them as bite-sized chunks rather than radical transformation, right? Um, I'll use an example personally. I, I generally take Saturdays off. I call it digital Sabbath, Friday night to Sunday morning. 
no email, no phone. I'm on, I, I, I have my computer open sometimes because I write and I, I, I go running and I look at my run performance and stuff like that. But, but no, like kind of no interaction around email or phone or work. And I'm, I'm not religious, but I just use the Sabbath idea. I figure there's, there's plenty of people in our society who are religious who take the Sabbath off completely and are very successful. So if they can do it, um, there's no good reason why, why anyone can't do it. I had a three-week stretch in the midst of the COVID crisis where I was doing uh, over probably a six to eight-week stretch, a ton of work for uh, on the private sector side, but for the state of Colorado in conjunction with the state. And so I had three weeks in a row where I didn't, not only did I not take a digital Sabbath, but I worked all day Saturday and Sunday. Um, and the work pace was incredibly intense because it was not just dealing with crisis. It was also dealing with a whole bunch of stuff that was new to me. So I was going up a steep learning curve as I was trying to figure stuff out and build teams. I ended up building effectively uh, two startups that had over 100 people that were doing different, on, on a volunteer basis, that were doing different things in that time period. But also my full normal job, which included a whole bunch of companies that were in their own version of crisis and trying to figure out what was going on in situational awareness. And, uh, and you know, and then being with uh, my partner, Amy, and the two of us having our own emotional ups and downs about what was going on and our fears and trying to figure out where we could help um, both individually and through our foundation. And at the end of three weeks of that, I was exhausted and really exhausted at all levels. And I knew that I needed to be taking those Saturdays off to refresh myself. Uh, and I wasn't, and I felt an obligation not to because of the crush and burden of the work. Um, but the next weekend I did, and I, and I did, and I'm like, wow, I, I cannot believe I have not been taking, you know, the simple tactic that I've been doing for a long time, I just sort of let go. And, you know, if I had done another week like that, I would have broken. And so it's the little things also, not just the big arcs, uh, the last comment I'd say is there's so much oppositional behavior. There's so much anger and hostility, especially in the United States. Um, it's going to get worse the rest of this year because of the election, the politics, and, you know, the endless programming that we get from the media, uh, again, which in my mind has now become a, a force of bad, not a force of good uh, in a lot of ways. Um, there's, there's definitely good in some of that stuff, but a lot of bad. Um, try to figure out how to relate to it in a way that is healthy for you versus a default mode. Uh, the same thing as people who are entrepreneurs and people who are leaders, try to approach things from a perspective of kindness. The amount of pressure that people are under, including you, is immense. Um, the amount of heartbreak going on in our world is immense. It's incredibly easy to be angry at it all the time. Nothing wrong with being angry at some of it, um, because some of it does, you know, it, it makes sense to be angry at, but try to figure out how to have that work for you. Um, and especially in how you relate to other people. Uh, and my example there would be, I don't get angry very often. It takes a lot to really toss me over the edge. Um, so this is very easy for me, but I know a lot of people it's not as easy for, which is for me, it's quite easy to absorb other people's anger. Somebody's angry and frustrated about something, even if they're angry or frustrated at me. Um, it doesn't cause me to have to react and respond with anger. Uh, by the way, I don't necessarily say they're correct and I'm sorry and everything's good, but I listen and I try to learn from it. As a leader, try to take that posture as a default posture with, your, with the people that work for you, your customers, the people you work with, because they're under enormous pressure too. 
And the leaders can change the texture of a lot of things by adopting that kind of a posture. Um, and I think some of the best leaders of some of the largest companies um, uh, have that as their day in, day out approach. Um, own your mistakes, apologize quickly with real apologies when you make mistakes. Don't say, I'm sorry you feel that way, but just say, I'm sorry. Listen, respond, engage. Don't try to solve the other person's problem that is not your problem to solve, but be empathetic and be responsive to it. And when, the, when somebody attacks you unreasonably rather than attack them back or try to change the attack vector to something else, you know, try to understand what's actually bothering them because it might not be the thing that they're yelling at you about or attacking you about. It might be something else. Uh, and just if you're aware of that, it, it might be better for you too. And Brad, thanks so much for your insights. You've always been there uh, for me as a mentor and always been there for your portfolio companies. So really appreciated the discussion and uh, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me and listening to Brad Feld on the Decoding Digital podcast. Today, I was so inspired by Brad's focus on thinking about the self and really your own mental health in order to relate to others. And this awareness that he talked about of empathy in, in really being able to cultivate conversations and work with multiple stakeholders is something that really resonated with me. And in Decoding Digital, we talk a lot about digital transformation and really thinking about the history and the future. And what really, I think, was incredibly insightful about Brad's discussion is really looking at the histories, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and today, but noticing that there's no kind of one common theme so as a leader or entrepreneur, you have to adapt to what's happening in the moment. And while history can be a good predictor of the future, it really is not the, the uh, only way that you can see what's coming. Uh, so you always have to be attuned to what's coming ahead and, and really focus on uh, overall uh, managing yourself to manage your business. Don't miss the next episode of Decoding Digital. I also got hooked on the power of innovation in medical research, where we took a disease that no one had heard of in 1981, and by 1993, we could actually save lives from it because there was this, this uh, global effort at the level of people, governments, and at the level of advocacy to drive science forward and bring something, uh, some solution forward where we could actually change lives. Dr. Don Shepard, Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.